Hey everyone, we've been using Furnished Finder for the last five years. When it comes to travel nursing assignments or long-term vacations, Furnished Finder is a place to go. One of the most stressful aspects about travel nursing is finding housing. There are a lot of sites that offer furnished homes for short-term leasing. Furnished Finder has thousands of furnished properties nationwide to meet your every need. If you're looking for a one-bedroom studio to a three-bedroom family home, Furnished Finder has you covered. Travel with the peace of mind with Furnished Finder. Start your search at FurnishedFinder.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome, welcome to the Couple of Nurses Show here with the host, Peter Matt, two nurses on a mission to change this world one conversation at a time. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. If you find a value in the show, please share and review the show. It would mean absolutely everything to us. CupofNurses.com for the latest updates, merch releases, and show notes, and also the resource page. For Lifestyle Podcast, you can check out weareforeignwarriors.com. In this episode, we would like to introduce you to Raj Sundar. Raj Sundar is a full spectrum of family physician and community organizer. He hosts Healthcare for Humans, a podcast dedicated to educating others on how to better care for culturally diverse communities so they can be better healers. What's up, listeners? Did you have a long shift at work? or a hard workout, feeling dehydrated, no worries. We've got you covered with Liquid IV. Liquid IV is a perfect solution for those wanting to stay hydrated without consuming all the extra sugar and artificial ingredients in sport drinks. It's a hydration multiplier that provides two to three times more hydration than water alone. And guess what? As our listener, you can use the code CONPOD, C-O-N-P-O-D, to receive 15% off your order and free shipping. Hey Raj, thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much for being here. Can you give us a little bit back about yourself and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, thanks for having me. My name is Raj Sundar. I'm a family physician and I still consider myself full spectrum that I do prenatal care. So take care of people who are pregnant and then uh, deliver miscobelt. So I go to the hospital and deliver babies. It's one of the most rewarding parts of say of my of a job. In addition to that, you know, I have a family, I have two kids, it's for small hall, uh, and I'm here in Washington State, in Seattle. And my journey is long and winding, I guess, but not as not as winding as other folks. But I did grow up in India uh, and uh, joined my parents in North Carolina and then moved to Washington State for residency. And then I've stayed here since. Ooh. And how did you start the Healthcare for Humans podcast? I know you have a another passion you got excited about other than being a family physician right yeah that's a sun threat of my my journey in life is i'm a family physician and i said you know there are a lot of rewarding parts of my job at the same time i think we all can relate to it in that when we're part of healthcare and healthcare systems it feels like we're letting down our patients because how our systems are set up and I'll be used kind of specific for me, me as a family medicine doctor who sees patients at clinic. The obvious limitation is I see my patients for like 15 minutes at a time. And I take care of a lot of different people. And then I take care of immigrant communities and refugee communities. And what I felt that was really difficult for me was caring for them in the way they want to be cared for, especially when their values, beliefs, and worldview was different than mine, right? Whether it's the, the Khmer community, which is Cambodians who've suffered through community trauma, 
or Somali community who have specific beliefs and have also experienced trauma. They come to this Western healthcare system to receive the care they want. And then it just feels like they don't get what they want. And so there's a bigger level of healthcare systems and how do we care for communities there. But just individually, I feel like I didn't understand the culture and the community well enough to care for them. Hmm. So to bridge that gap, I started this podcast because the Healthcare for Humans podcast, the goal is to educate clinicians to care for culturally diverse communities. And I chose podcasting because of this, and I have two kids, and I was doing a lot of dishes and chores, and podcasting was a beautiful way of multitasking and still learning and meeting some of my needs. And there's power in voice, story, and conversations and to communicate something complex, especially something complex as culture. Because have you both done any cultural competency modules? Uh, I want to say maybe, but that's like rank real quick just to make sure I have all my C's or, or whatever the requirements are to still be a nurse. Yeah, to be honest, yeah, those, if you if you're able to click through it, we probably did. <laughs> exactly, right? We all click through stuff and this huge important thing for for people is something we click through because the content is kind of boring and it's often a checklist. It's often stereotypical and the takeaway is like, listen to people, right? Like, uh, that's the takeaway you can went away with. And I felt like after doing those modules, it was so incomplete because it was like kind of stereotypical and limiting and podcasting was a way to go deep into something. And you all have found that here too, right? You can really get into the nuances and unpack things and leave room for contradictions because culture is that way. So when I go to somebody from the symbolic community and I interview their leader, they're going to tell me all the ways healthcare falls short for them. And then we can go more details if we want later. And they could explain the nuances in their own voice. So give space for the community itself to speak for themselves rather than me going and studying them, which we often do with healthcare too. And Raj, coming from, from India, I'm not sure what age you, you came from India at, but just coming from India, did you felt there was like that lack of culture awareness just, just by you coming from India here to the U.S.? Maybe. I think it was young. Okay. Right. So when I came around, I don't know, I was probably seven or eight years old. I think what stuck with me is the openness to experience because everything was different. And uh, this memory came up for me, but sometimes random memories come up to me and come to you. Uh, I was talking to somebody about just how different it is to come to America. I was like, oh yeah, like, you know, what was really different. The toilets. <laughs> where I was in India, we had the Easter toilets where you spot on the ground. Mm. And then I came here and you know, you've got these toilets that you have to sit on. I was really young. So I came for the first time living with my parents and and my parents, like, were really worried one night, I remember, and, like, knocked on the door when I was in the bathroom. They're like, are you okay there? And I just remember this memory of, like, I tried to squat on the toilet because I was like, that's how you sit out toilets, right? So I was, like, trying to balance on top of this Western toilet. And I was, like, slipping, you know, it's like, they hurt. But I like, are you okay? And then eventually, you know, they told me about it. But that was just an example of how different things can be. So it let me it allowed me to be open to different people's perception and worldviews and challenge my own assumptions so i think i've carried that with me so i don't default to this is how it should be done as easily as sometimes we 
can default to because we're human. I, I love the perspective you bring. A few episodes on, we had a patient that was in the ICU, was intubated and experienced delirium. She shared her experience where the healthcare system lacked support emotionally and psychologically. And again, it's very multi-factor. You come into the show and you bring up the the gap that we don't have culturally. And if you were to kind of take a shot at it, maybe throw a dart at the wall to see how we could potentially fix this, because ultimately it affects the patient care rate. And the front line is the hospital healthcare system. That's where most people go. But you see these gap culturally. So how can we bridge that gap where we're more culturally sensitive if you were to take a shot at it any kind of way? Yeah, I think from a high level, like healthcare system, there's value to autonomy and self-determination of having a pot of resources saying, hey, your community is here. You know best of how to care for the community. We'll support you. And here are some resources and money to build clinics the way you want, build healthcare with indigenous forms of healing. When I say that, you know, people hold traditions of healing within their cultures that they want to bring in to health as well. So incorporating that and creating a system that works for you and we're here to support you, right? If you know you don't have to build your own hospital, we'll make sure we work with you. So there's a way to do that as big systems. I think at the individual level, we could all benefit from more education too. When I say that people sometimes get overwhelmed, they're like, wow, like how many communities are there? How many cultures, how many countries, how am I supposed to learn it all? And I try to pause people there because often in your neighborhood or the hospital that you're part of, there's a handful of communities, even in the most diverse communities, there may be 30 or 40. We've memorized so many things in medicine and rare diseases and protocols. This should not be something that seems daunted to you. Understanding the communities that are in your neighborhood, especially its hospital system and what matters to them and how can we change our relationships to them. The last one that I'll make is I've been deep into thinking about how people are critical of our healthcare systems, right? And I don't know if you've heard of Victoria Sweet. She wrote God's Hotel and Soul Medicine. I think that's her Norris book. And I think the other book that I was reading was uh, Victor Montori, which is why we were bold. And I, I'm trying to incorporate how people were really knowledgeable about the system envision a different future. And one thing that always comes out, which seems so obvious is making healthcare slower, which is 15 minute visits here. And you and I both have done traveled are saying, no, there's so much time pressure because they're expecting productivity, want efficiency and resource constraints, but making things slow down and helping patients be seen for who they are goes a long way too, because culture is just one part of it, right? I I'm Indian, but there's so many different kinds of Indians and me as an Indian is only part of my identity. And you wouldn't really know that until you know me and most systems right now or the ways they're set up are designed to know people well. Mm-hmm. And then. Then Raj, while you're, while you're speaking out, I, I was thinking you, you're saying to slow down healthcare in, in a way, slow down medicine, but what's like a, an idea that you have to maybe slow things down because doctors and physicians and anybody in healthcare practitioners, they have, they're always overall a patient. They always have a high patient load where 
it seems like their time is dwindling every year, every month. They have these new quotas. They, they got to hit. They got to bring in more patients for the hospital. Hospital has, has to make more money every year because it's not seen as like a good good revenue stream. So how can you really slow things down? Do you think maybe hiring more positions, more healthcare providers? What's something that we could to help slow things down? Because in this batch based society, it's more of like every year it has to be quicker. As, as humans, like even look at cell phones, we want things to be the fastest at fast technology. You want to get in, get out. You want to just be focused on speed where you could go and treat and then, and then have the patient leave or, or, or discharge them or maybe just do another, another console next month. How can we, we slow things down in a society that's so focused on speeding things up? What a deep question, right? Well, you don't want me to challenge humanity's uh, progression right now. Uh, I will say there are so many ways to respond to that question, right? Yes, there's a question of resourcing. If you have more staff, more clinicians with less patient load, less patient visits, better naturally make things slower. And that is a different conversation of how can that even be possible in our current system. But I do think with our culture or culture, I'm using that word as like our technological culture and our expectations of what healthcare should be is moving towards convenience and efficiency, which has its value. If I show up to you with the STD, I want my antibiotics as quickly as I can, like and as conveniently as I can. Mm. But if my mom has cancer and we don't have a cure for it, I want her to be cared for as an individual. I'm not looking for just convenience. And there's a depth to that relationship I don't think will change. So I think the slowness, even in our fast-paced culture, is important when somebody's going through life-changing diagnosis or when somebody has multiple diagnosis. And we have a lot of people living like that, right? With diabetes, heart disease, just had a heart attack. And um, their family is also struggling with health issues. I think there's value to be known at a deep level and have continuity with the same person there. And then even in our current system, I just bring it back to myself where I've seen patients in 15 minute, 20 minute increments. Can I slow down medicine right this moment? Is that possible? And that is a challenge that I pose to myself. And I think it's possible. And I love, I think I brought this up. You all talk about mindfulness and presence a lot because there's a way we carry our bodies and our routines that we go through the day that everything's a blur. But I do think I can be really mindful in the day-to-day -day activity that I'm doing to help people feel like they're being heard and seen. I'm kind of talking very abstract right now, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring it back down. It is, let's say I just saw a patient that, uh, that is from Ethiopia. And, you know, I've done a few episodes on the Ethiopian community. It's not comprehensive because it's hard to cover an entire history's but an entire country's history of a culture. But I learned enough that I have the foundation to talk to patients from Ethiopia living in my community. So when I'm with them, yes, I talk about the medical problem, but also talk about how they're internalizing the conflict that's happening in their country. And you may or may not know this, but there is a, there's a lot of conflict in the country and we won't go into that. But I know that because of having this conversation and how that is weighing heavy in the mental health 
of that community because they told me directly. So now when I bring it up to my patients, it feels like to them, I'm not rushing through the visit of like, okay, here's diabetes, here's some medicine, take this, I'll see you in two weeks. But like, yeah, here's that, here's what we, I want to do with that. But tell me, like, I know this has been affecting a lot of people in your community. Has that been affecting you too? And I think then they really open up in a way that even though the time hasn't changed, it feels like we're connecting at a deeper level. I'm kind of thinking about how we can improve this. I had an idea where I was thinking about a patient that I had where she was Spanish. She was very in distress because nobody has time to bring the interpreter next to the room to understand each other, right? We say we have to understand the culture, but sometimes we're in the speed of healthcare so much where we can't even communicate language to have some kind of regular baseline. I decided to take time, put the interpreter on and change her dressing. She had like a, a lab procedure with some, you know, um, lab. so she, she had a weird procedure because she did it half in Mexico, half here because it got infected. So she had like tubes or some piping to close this down. I don't know how to explain it. But anyways, piping, piping, a PVC piping. What happened is I actually took time for the interpreter to communicate with her for 10 minutes and she was actually calm. Her heart rate went down. She was actually able to take a power nap. And imagine if we had a tool, like you mentioned, we're able to spitball some things in her culture. We could go provide better care. Maybe we could interpret or merge AI somewhere with healthcare where this AI gives us a background of what's happening in their you say utopia, what's happening in utopia, like the news, what do they like? For example, people in Chinese culture like a warm cup of hot tea in the morning. So you're able to better care to these patients like, wow, he actually knows that I like a hot cup of tea in the morning. So I'm thinking of what ways we could implement to slow it down or maybe just get faster at the thing because not everybody can have the proper education to understand like two different cultures but maybe we could understand it by helping you know nurses and technology work together like together in a way yeah, yeah i'm ready let's create this together i love it <laughs> yeah, i think there's two ways of thinking of that one is let's say i'm gonna say just where i am right now there's a large ethiopian community at least that example uh, or it can use you know there's a large native hawaiian community and many people may not have that i think there's value to both of having this vision that you have and for me reaching out to the community leaders and building relationships with them right because that's how i'm learning about the community because in the future now i have the relationships and i can reach out to them if they have more questions so there's value to you building relationships with the people that you're taking care of and this tool imagine yes like how like 10 different communities that are uh, commonly come to my hospital or my clinic, but what about if there's like few people visiting from a different country or it's only like 20 people from Nepal here, like how much can I learn about that community quickly and having something like this, where I could totally imagine, uh, like a crash course or something like when you have the EMR come up, it also highlights like. I have people uh, from this community, this is uh, what they value. Again, you got to be really care careful about stereotypical. So there's education around how to use them because you get the knowledge about how what's important to them, the values, what decision-making can look like. And then you present to the patient of like, hey, like this is what I know could be important to you. Is that true for you? 
and they could be they could say like i'm a second generation nepalese like i'm barely connected to my nepal culture right uh or they could say oh, thank you like yes like that would be really helpful because right now a lot of the interventions are focused on community health workers and patient navigators right who are from the culture to bridge that gap between healthcare and the communities and I think they said it. Yeah, yes, the end of people and technology, um, and people willing to invest in a technology that may or may not make them a lot of money. Because mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of the ChatGPT API craze right now is directed directly to places that will make it easy to monetize. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's usually how a lot of things work. You know, you have to monetize a new idea for it to kind of get pushed on a track and get used used a little more. Like, that's why you always have that, unless some things always have like this high bridge to entry. And then once that high bridge entry is broken, you could say it's more accessible to the, to the, to the public sphere once uh, that threshold is kind of, kind of hit. But Rob, working in prenatal care and even labor delivery, is there some interesting cultural situations that, that you, that you have ever been in? Because I know when I was in nursing school in my clinical, we had a high, uh, I think it was a high population of, I'm not sure it was, it was Indian or it was. Uh, Middle Eastern uh, families where they wouldn't allow males in the room during the the labor and delivery process. So has anything uh, surprised your culture culturally um, working with me okay with with women and then also in the labor delivery process? Yeah, I think there are a lot of the situations that provoked or inspired me to do this work in a more intentional way happened in labor and delivery. Right, we take care of a lot of communities with different beliefs on what labor and um, delivery should look like. I'm not in that space to talk eloquently about the nuances of it, but being as being a witness, you know, in the labor and delivery floor, I've seen many examples of what I'll say derision of people's culture. So, for example, I a Somali woman, and I'll keep this vague confidentiality, but. Uh, was it labor and then there was the fetal heart tracing it sounds like you all have done ob nursing but uh, the fetal heart tracing uh, wasn't looking great and then went into category two meaning we were a little worried about maybe category three but it's hard to say you're in those situations a lot right the uncertainty and we we do know that fetal heart tracing is in itself not 100 percent predictive of bad outcomes it's actually a poor marker for predicting neonatal seizures or poor outcomes but it's the only tool we have so we relied on it all we relied on it a lot but when it was happening for a prolonged time in that situation and with the somali patient was in labor the team in charge or the attending charge recommended c-section and they went in and had told the patient the patient said no right and these are the hardest situations because you can't force somebody to have C-section, but that was the team's recommendation. And then she kept insisting that she didn't want a C-section. And the question in that moment is, what do we do next? And can you, have you all been in those, have you all been in those moments before? Yeah, it definitely happens quite a bit with getting blood, with, with giving patients blood that have yeah, like, with your own witness. Exactly. Yeah. Where you're like, yeah, well, this will really help you because your was low. This will really help you with this GI issue hacking, but we had to find different ways around it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's room. And I try to not make things black and white because the space can't hold that kind of thinking. 
is you want to honor patients' culture beliefs and try to provide safe care for them and this baby, right? But what happened in that moment when she said no was the team kept going back in there and it uh, became more and more condescending. Like she didn't really love her baby. And essentially suggested that if you loved your baby and you would have a C-section right now. And and then it escalated into confrontation, right? And then she eventually had a C-section and the baby was fine, she was fine. And the team was satisfied, right? They got the outcome that they wanted, the one and they got the outcome they wanted, which was a healthy baby and a healthy mom. But she suffered trauma because of how it happened. And I do think there's room to make space for her worldview, which is that potentially, I don't know the full truth of in what happened in her life, but I do know the Somali community overall or at least some facts about the Somali community and I've talked to their leaders is that they've relied in their faith of God to get them through so many traumatic experiences, way more than what she's experiencing right now. And that they face some horrific conditions. And we were not acknowledging like our own limitations and predicting outcomes. So there's some cultural humility here, right? In that this is the tool we're using, it's imperfect. And at some point it may definitively show the baby's not doing well, but we need to acknowledge this imperfection to you. And I think there's a way in an alternative world where this could have happened, where I, I could have, or we could have said, yes, like this is what we're thinking right now. And I hear that you want to still try for a batch of delivery. But our recommendation is a C-section and then we are a little more patient and then keep saying that recommendation, but don't turn it into a confrontational encounter or a condescending encounter. In addition, like question our, question our own assumptions that she's understanding everything we're saying, right? Like, Hey, like I am not from this community. I am an Indian doctor or a white doctor. Maybe I need a Somali community health worker or a doula who can really communicate what we're seeing and hearing so if they can bridge and maybe she doesn't understand the seriousness of this, if we're really thinking it's serious. So there's a lot of questions we could have asked and approached differently that it wasn't such a horrific encounter for her, even though we thought we had quote unquote achieved the outcome we wanted. Mm. I think that's the fascinating thing with different cultures that we have these beliefs and ultimately comes out to faith and we know how important faith is or the soul part of the human experience for people but in a western medicine kind of cut that away it's just the body itself and maybe the mind part a little bit well, we don't incorporate that part where maybe could improve uh, better outcomes you know and again with i'm thinking about the ic maybe during covid we had people in the worst times and they were spiritually just withdrawn right uh there's this book uh you know who Viktor Frankl's man in search for meaning. So he was a Holocaust survivor. He noticed that people didn't die from like the lack of food and water. It was like the, from the lack of hope to live that willpower. So if we could somehow culturally be competent enough to help instill beliefs and faith and hope into an individual based on their cultural preference, because we can't do it any other way. We can't say, Jesus has your back, grab, grab his hand. Well, we can because they don't know who Jesus is in their their hearts, but they know, insert their God. So yeah, I agree that 
and being more culturally competent would help healthcare overall. And I'm kind of thinking about the busyness of things. You were mentioning earlier how we have so much little time. Is there a benefit with concierge medicine at all? I noticed there was a couple of doctors in Illinois because I was doing research how they're moving away from family practice and they're doing more like a subscription model, which ultimately is going to have more time with patient care. Have you noticed any benefits about that or are you familiar with that type of medicine? Yeah, I think it's called direct primary care. Matt, I think there's a, where do I start with this? Is there's a way that you can create a system for an affluent and people who can afford it and get them exactly the way you want. But our, a lot of the problems we have in healthcare system or health insurance system is that it is a large, large network of cross subsidization because there are some people who get really, really sick and some people who don't get sick at all. And the healthy people paying insurance is supposed to subsidize the cost of the really sick people, right? At the basis of insurance. And we can go into where, what, like what's so expensive, everything from pharmaceuticals to pharmaceutical, like PBMs, so people have heard about it. We don't need to go into that. I'm saying all of that because the direct primary care model that you're talking about, yes, I can take care of people who can afford the subscription model and, and come to me. Many people can't, and often the people can't are the people who are in communities that need healthcare the most in, in a personalized way. So I don't know if I would go towards that personalized model, personalized model per slate, uh, as you could think about like community health centers and all of that who take care of uninsured folks. Uh, if they could monetize people that way, I'm sure they would have done it that way because that I think they're always looking for funding too. But it made me think of, I think you're going back. I'm going to approach it different, different way this time. It's like, how do you make more time with people? And I still want to challenge people's assumption that time is time because there's a perception of time too. And I think we can change the perception almost always wherever we are right now while having this conversation about how do we ultimately change the time itself without getting too meta here. I'll, I'm going to give you an example. I use uh, this example a lot because it resonates with people. I, I take care of the Native Hawaiian people, uh, Native Hawaiian community, as I mentioned. And one thing that came up when I was talking to a community leader from that community was, hey, like, one thing that clinicians do a lot, which is really frustrating and ultimately leads to a worse encounter, is we show up in the clinic, we show up in the hospital, and they're looking for a way to connect with us. And they talk about their vacation to Hawaii. And I think many people do that. I've probably done that. But then she brought up, you know, like you're talking about your vacation to Hawaii, but the reason we're here is because Hawaii became unaffordable because of tourism. And that we're now here in this new state, we can't even visit our family because flights are so expensive and that place is so expensive. And now here you are just talking about your vacation and that's how we're starting this encounter. So one, it points to understanding the historical and structural context of a community to, to understand that this could be a problem. I'm not saying I never bring up my vacation to Hawaii to anybody, but now I can ask them before bringing it up, like, Hey, like, have you been back home recently? Um, and what is your connection to your home? And they could say, go there all the time, or they could say this, right? I haven't been home in many years because it's been hard. 
And then two, because if you start out with a negative interaction like that, and that person has to be vulnerable with you of all the things that are bothering with them, oftentimes they're not going to share everything or they're not going to listen to you because you clearly don't understand. So then they're going to come back with the same problem or it's going to take longer to save a longer time to like cure or care from the same problem than it would be if you, if they trusted you from the beginning. So part of this is actively not doing things that are harmful and that that perception of time can change because you can get to solutions quicker when that trust is there between the person and you, right? Mm. Yeah. So coming back to what you just said and making them feel okay to, to be, to be vulnerable. What other approaches can you use as a physician or as a professional that opens up that room for that patient to feel, feel like they could get your trust or feel like they could be vulnerable without getting maybe judged or looked down upon or just feel like they're in like a safe space where they could just speak whatever their, their mind is telling, telling them to say. Yeah. I, I think there's some basics of principles of caring for people, right? It's like you do pay attention, pay attention, not just to their words, but their body language and what's be unsaid uh, in the tone they're using. So there's principles of caring. I think we're probably all think about which we lose because it's rush system and we get caught up in our routines. I think that's important. But the practices, uh, which is like, how, how do you actually make it real look like paying attention? It's for me, like being really diligent about learning about the communities and cultures, but also making room for a conversation to go that way. Right. Right. So let me think of, uh, another community, Pacific Islander community. Like, and I'm just using a community that's a little familiar to me. So people could come in with any kind of medical problem, right? That's the reason they made the visit or I made the visit for them. So I talk about that, but I also bring up other things that I know about their culture to see if it's relevant for them. So for the Pacific Islander community, there is that idea of fafa fine, which is gender fluidity that is present in their culture. It's essentially LGBTQIA all encompassed into one word because gender is fluid, right? They just say fafa fine. And so when people are, when we're talking about sexual activity or partners, sometimes I bring that concept up and they could say, oh, like, that's not me. Or there's a moment of surprise there, right? Like, oh, like this person knows about me. And nobody expects you to know everything about them or culture because they know people don't. But it's like, this person was curious enough to learn about my culture and will be interested for, so will be interested if I shared more. Because so many times what I've heard for patients when I have these conversations is like, hey, like I actually stopped explaining about anything about myself or culture because people didn't seem to care. Like they were like, okay, okay, like let's go on with the reason we're here. Um, and they clearly didn't care enough to know even a little bit about the community. So making that first step or taking that first step has been helpful for me uh, to bridge that gap. But I think I answered your question. Yeah. I love that. It seems like we need to fundamentally give people the ability or our patients a, an understanding, at least give them the open hand to let them know that, Hey, we want to understand you. We're curious enough to pour into your own cup so they could become vulnerable per se, have that courage to 
let us know more about them other than why they're physically here from an emotional standpoint or psychological or yeah. Uh, great summary. <laughs> and you are, uh, you're also a medical director. So what is a medical director for those that don't know? I, I think it probably depending on your system, it means a, a lot of things, but for being the system that I am in, it's managing the clinicians in our medical building. And then I'll be managing a few other clinics too, because they'll be, they'll take a bigger role and, um, within our organization. And if people ask me what my role is without getting into the weeds is probably about a few different things. One and is providing access to patients of like when patients call to get a visit with their doctor or clinician, can they get that appointment? If not, how can we make it easier for them to, to quality? Like the, are my clinicians providing quality care? You know, there, we all, every doctor is in a spectrum about how they treat patients and we want to make sure they're providing a quote unquote quality care. We can, we don't need to go into defining that, but also like, is the patient, are the patients that we're taking care of getting the cancer screenings, like breast cancer screenings, colon cancer screenings, or their blood pressure controlled. So there's a population level work there. Three is patient experience. Like when you come, are you having a good experience? I try to not rate that conversation about like consumer prism where like it's like you're not coming to target get to get antibiotics cut and but just like you want to have a good experience uh and not be like uh it's like a horrible to get the care you need uh for and that is equity of like hey like our blood is blood pressure better controlled if you are indian and white and not if, if you're a pacific islander why do people for Pacific Islanders have worse blood pressure control and what do we do about it? And then at last is people of like how important it is to take care of your people, right? Not your colleagues, like the things that go through their personal life and uh, balancing their family and work life, all of that stuff. So trying to do all of that. And I do think it gives me perspective and a uh, lot how do we say that it's like renovating an institution organization, it helps me understand the complexity of change and where all we need to take improvements off on, even if I don't have power to make all that change right now. Mm. Raj, I'm kind of curious how, how important are page satisfactions scores? Because there's been facilities that I worked at that are like, we need to boost our page satisfaction scores. You have to do everything you can around these patients to boost them up. But the other facilities are like, you know, don't worry about, don't worry too much about them. They're not that big of a deal. So are they really that important to facilities or is it just, do you get like funding from it? How do patient satisfaction scores influence like a facility? Uh, depends on, and this is like, there's so many stakeholders of healthcare, right? Depending on who you're asking, their importance is different. But if you're for health insurance, patient satisfaction can in the form. If you get the rating that you want, so people see that in the marketplace and sign up for you. So there's a lot of, a lot of things of the line, right? Are they going to choose you or not? If, if you're a provider, patient experience could be the, uh, one of the factors that patients decide to come to you or another place. So it's like an external rating system, right? It's imperfect. And I would probably fall in between making this patient experience score like 
do everything you can to improve it versus let's uh, not think about it twice. And I think there's a way to approach it uh, with the growth mindset where you look at it and ask yourself, hey, like, is there something that I'm doing repeatedly? Because actually the score is just a marker and there's a lot of information if you dig into it, right? That says, I'll just again speak from my perspective because it varies depending on your department. As a clinician doing outpatient medicine, there are like eight or nine questions and there are different categories. One is, did my doctor make me feel like I care for or did they review my medications with me? Was my follow-up plan and clear? So I could look at my data and look, hey, my experience is okay. And then, wow, like the follow-up and like there's so many patients that aren't clear with me. So then I can reflect and say, like, how can I make that clearer and better for my patients? Or is that a system issue? Like they just can't get back in the CV. So you can use that score as a marker for improvement and see where you're falling short or could get better. Because we're all trying to get better one way or another, right? Yeah. One last question, like always ask your guests and their episodes. So if you, had, if you had an opportunity to have a cup of coffee with anybody one last time, who would it be a what? Yeah, I was thinking about this. It's, uh, it was tough to think about it for myself, but I'll say it'll be Paul Farmer. Do you know Paul Farmer? He led, par- he led partners in help, which is an international NGO that's done a lot of work in Haiti. He follows this philosophy of liberation theology was based on Catholic tradition and that history is from Latin America, I think. Part of it is the belief of accompaniment, which is how do you accompany somebody through their suffering and hold their hands until they feel better. So there's a humanness to that approach. And the reason I would want to have coffee with them is his philosophy was that everybody, all the children in the world are my children. There's a selflessness to that. Uh, because of now that I have children, can feel myself becoming more selfish of like protecting my children, doing things for my family. And he approached it and he had a family too. And there was a book written about him, I think called Mountains to Mountains by Tracy Kidder and how he let down his own family because he thought everybody was his children. And so he missed his own child's birthday and all this. And I, I think I want to have a cup of coffee with them to understand how we felt doing that because it's so counterintuitive. And I don't know if I can ever make that decision, but I want to understand better. Like, hey, this child in Haiti is suffering and they need me to help them somehow. And I'm going to sacrifice an important moment in my own family's life because this uh, child who is also connected to me at this higher level, this consciousness level, needs my help. But yeah, there's probably no easy answer, but I, I want to know. I want to know what that answer is. He's, he's an interesting guy. It seems like a mixture of uh, being altruistic, a humanitarian, somehow becoming selfless, where he saw everybody like his brother and his sister in a sense, because we're all from this, from the same source, essentially. That's beautiful. Yep. Yep. And if people want to hear more about your work, what you do, potentially a podcast, where can people go online to find you? The easiest way to find me is just go to healthcareforhumans.org and all the links are there, including the link to Instagram and Twitter. Uh, And check out an episode if you've got a chance.
We really appreciate you getting on the show and sharing your perspective. I think a lot of nurses need to hear how important culture is. A lot of times, just like we talked about in this episode, everything is so fast-paced where it's just treating the patient here but not really understanding them for the humanist, for the person that they are. So thank you for sharing your work and Western society, and I hope it keeps growing. We keep becoming more culturally competent, and we can make great change happen from every aspect of healthcare, including this side. So thank you for what you do. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it.